And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, of course, as we get the show underway. It's The Real Investment Show. Of course, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Our latest blog post is out talking about ESG, right? Um, environmental, social, governance, investing. We've written some articles about this in the past, and it's just interesting because one thing we had written about previously is talking, well, that ultimately when it comes down to it, it's all about performance. And there's been massive outflows going out of ESG funds now. Why? Because they're underperforming. They're even underperforming the benchmark index. You are better off being in the S&P 500 this year than beginning ESG funds. Of course, the one thing that ESG funds don't own or oil stocks, which <laughs> have done exceptionally well this year. So, you know, it's surprising that, well, it shouldn't, I shouldn't say surprising. It's not surprising that when it comes right down to it, you know, people investing money for the virtue is great until something else is outperforming. And we talked about on the show before that uh, back in the 1990s, late 1990s, there was this whole movement by Wall Street not to invest in sin stocks, right? So no alcohol, no tobacco, no pornography, right? So couldn't invest in any companies that, you know, had those ties, right? So we were going to clean up Wall Street, I guess, for lack of a better term. And of course, as the dot-com crash hit, uh, those stocks, the sin stocks, turned out to be some of the very best performing assets. And of course, that's where money went. So not surprising that that always happens. And then what happened with ESG here is, is not surprising. And, you know, again, we've talked about before, ESG sounds great on the surface, right? But it's a very nebulous measure, right? How, how do you measure these things? You know, Apple has slave labor in China. How, how environmentally, socially, governance conscious is Apple really, right? It's an ESG stock. Tesla recently kicked out by S&P of ESG funds because, well, because of issues with, you know, underlying supply issues. So, you know, it's, 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 again, it's a very nebulous is how we feel today about certain things. There's not real hard factual measures like PE ratios and price to sales and debt to equity. You know, those are things that you can actually measure stocks with, look at valuations with. A lot of this other stuff on the virtue side is just simply, well, um, you know, kind of our hopes and dreams that we should say. And so again, it's a, the article's out on the website this morning, realinvestmentadvice.com. You can get to it uh, right there at the website. Uh, yesterday, we talked about the market was set up to try to rally and break out of this downtrend that we had been in since really the, uh, since March of this year. And, and, you know, it's a very interesting market that we're in right now. We're going to talk some more about this this morning. You know, things are so negative, it's actually positive. Right. I mean, you know, if you take a look at sentiment and you take a look at, you know, um, positioning by investors, etc. I mean, they're just they're as bearish as we you would think if I if I just showed you the data on sentiment positioning, you would say, well, you just went through the, the biggest financial crisis since 2008. Because a lot of the sentiment in the markets is as negative as it was in at the bottom of the market in 2008. I mean, it's just it's quite amazing, right? Markets are down less than 20% for the year. And yet sentiment is as negative as it was as if we just went through a Lehman bankruptcy. 
And that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition about the markets. You know, I was talking, we were talking about this yesterday on our uh, investment management call uh, before the market opened. And, you know, it, when the market was rallying, back in 21 and, and, and 2020, right? We all talked about the fear of missing out. We wrote some articles on it. We talked about it on the show. The fear of missing out, right? Investors were afraid that they would miss out on the move of the market. They had to be in, right? That's that fear of missing out. It's a psychological behavior. Well, what's interesting right now is, is that markets are declining. And while investors are fearful about the decline of the market, you take a look at their sentiment and what their outlook is, et cetera. It's very, very, very bearish, right? Just like I said, as bearish as it was, as if we had just gone through a financial crisis. But we haven't. And yet that's where investors are currently positioned psychologically, yet they haven't reduced their equity exposure. Equity allocations of individual investors are still near highs. They've come down a little bit, but they're still very near record levels, right? So while they're very afraid of the market, they're not willing to sell the market. Why? Because of the fear of missing out. What they're afraid of now is they're afraid of missing the bottom, right? And I'm getting a lot of phone calls from people going, hey, just tell me when to get in because I've got a bunch of cash. I just, I'm just waiting to get in and buy stocks. And that's that fear of missing out, but it's in reverse this time. It's the fear of missing the bottom. I'm going to have to write an article on this. <laughs> FOBO. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where we are. And it's, just, it's just a very interesting uh, set, setup in the markets. Okay, but uh, as we talked about yesterday, uh, the markets are in this very nice uh, downward trend channel that we've been in since the highs of March continue to run up into that resistance level and fail. We failed yesterday. Now, markets are going to try to open up again this morning. We're up about 200 points in the Dow right now. Again, just kind of getting into earnings season. We've got Halliburton today reporting earnings, Truist Financial. Right now, we've got a lot of banks coming in. But uh, Netflix is reporting this afternoon after the bell. So all eyes will be on Netflix, of course, and talking about you know, their subscriber growth. Are they actually still adding subscribers or not? That's going to be the real question. And as inflate, and this is going to be one of the inflation questions, right? Netflix earlier this year raised their prices and they're trying to implement measures to reduce account sharing, et cetera. So they got a little bit more aggressive on pricing and positioning earlier this year before inflation really started hitting households. Now households are having to make that decision. Do I really want to watch Stranger Things or can I avoid the, the $14.99 a month annual, you know, monthly fee, right? Or whatever the fee is that they're paying. And this is going to be the real question. Are people subscribing to Netflix to pick up that additional fee when they have other things they're having to spend money on because of inflation, right? Higher costs. It's going to be really kind of an inflation question. And this is going to be, I think, one of the kind of the key components to listen to, to a lot of these conference calls is to what position, what companies are saying about the impact of inflation on their business, not just in terms of input costs, and their ability to pass those costs on to customers, but how many customers are slowing down purchasing goods or services because of higher inflation? That's going to be the real question, right? And this is going to reflect back to earnings. And as we've talked about recently, you know, analysts haven't been ratcheting down earnings yet, but now over the last two weeks, they've gotten very aggressive about bringing down these earnings estimates. Now the realization is setting in that, well, you know, just maybe not these companies can meet these rather lofty estimates as inflation eats into profit margins. Uh, the good news, of course, is we talked about yesterday, market continues to hold these bottoms. Where it looks like the market's trying to bottom here. 
And so if we vacillate a little bit more in here and continue to try to work off some of this uh, kind of this you know, this bear market issue we've been in, start to form a little bit more solid base. We could be setting up here for the market to try to bottom. Again, a lot of this is gonna depend on a couple of things. One, just, you know, how bad of a recession are we gonna have, right? So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, people were talking about no recession. Now we're talking about a mild recession, or could it be worse? Right? Could we have a worse recession? When we come back from the break, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about you know, the recession, what type of recession it might be, what does that mean? And I want to talk a little bit more about this positioning that we're in, in terms of sentiment and markets and, and historically what that suggests for portfolios going forward. I'm your host, Lance Roberts, this morning for The Real Investment Show. Stick around. More coming up right after the break. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get our latest blog post. Be right back. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Inflation touches every aspect of your life. No one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation. RIA Advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan, and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn, Thursday, August 4th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's no magic elixir against inflation. Our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment show and welcome back to the show this morning it's of course uh tuesday as we get this tuesday edition underway and uh, talking a little bit about markets and uh, again this has been kind of one of the key issues uh you know obviously everybody's trying to figure out what's going on with the markets, right? It's just, you know, are we in a bear market? Uh, you know, if you talk to, you know, the kind of the mainstream media, you know, they're adamant that we're in a bear market, but yet we're not really. Markets aren't, you know, the, the technical measure of being in a bear market is stocks are down 20% or more. And we're not even down 20%. I mean, we're just kind of flirting around that level. But, you know, um, you know, again, if we take a look at, you know, kind of longer term trends of the markets, I mean, we're still in a very bullish trend from the 2009 bottoms. Um, you know, it's hard to say you're in a bear market when you're still above the 2020 peaks. So you had this very, you know, sharp advance because of $5 trillion in liquidity. And again, you know, markets have certainly sold off a bit this year. But again, still 20% above, uh, sorry, still still above the peak, even with this, you know, kind of this 20% decline. So, you know, markets feel terrible. I, you know, absolutely agree. I mean, it's just been a crappy year to try to manage money. But, you know, it's it's not the end of the world. And 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 while markets are down a bit, it's really been dependent more on what type of assets that you were invested in. If you were invested in cryptocurrency, it's been a heck of a bad year. Right. If you were invested in, you know, the ARC type funds, it's been a terrible year. And if you looked at those, you know, those assets and said, hey, that's the market, 
then yeah, we're in a bear market because those are those are down, you know, 50, 60, 70%, right? But if you just take a look at the major indexes, they're not down that much. And so while it seems terrible, this is, and again, this is where we've got to be careful is that while it seems terrible, right? The world just seems terrible, right? And, and it's not just, you know, the markets, it's the economic data, it's the political divide, it's, you know, it's, it's just, uh, you know, social media is just, you know, hate after hate after hate, you know, headlines. It's all about bad stuff. You know, no matter where you look, you're just kind of inundated with news. What, by the way, whatever happened, you know, or why, when did it happen? I remember growing up, right? You had news three times a day, right? You got up in the morning, you had, you had the morning news, got you off to work. You had news at five and then you had news at 10, <laughs> And, and, and it was in, important because the news in the morning told you what happened overnight. The news at 5 told you what happened between 9 a.m. this morning and 5. And then at 10 o'clock was the recap of what happened from 5 to 10. So, you know, it wasn't this just this, you know, this, you know, this endless, you know, push of, of news, what they call news. Right now it's just anything they can throw up there to, to fill airtime. And that's really the problem is we stopped reporting news and just trying to fill airtime. This is where opinions became a lot more prevalent. But this all impacts psychology, right? When you're in, and, you know, regardless of your political leanings or whatever, right? I mean, if you're just inundated with just negative t negativity all day long, right? You get negative. World's coming to an end, right? Uh, you know, I get emails from people, dollars going to zero. Dollars is uh, sitting at record highs, but okay, dollars going to zero. Uh, <laughs> you know, inflation's going to kill everybody. Uh, you know, climate change, you, know, you name it. We've got all these problems, right? It's just negativity everywhere. So it's not surprising that that's just all kind of showing up, right? So now you've got inflation that's impacting the household, can't make ends meet, you know, can't pay my bills, and then I turn on the news and it's nothing but negativity on the news. And, and, you know, it's just everywhere. And so it's not surprising that it's showing up in investor attitudes or individual attitudes. Consumer sentiment has uh, gotten very negative, right? Uh, take a look at recent polls, right? Uh, is the country going in the right direction or not? Those polls are at record levels of the country's going in the wrong direction. Why? Because everywhere you look, it's negative. It's not that bad. Yes, we have high inflation at the moment, but that'll go away. Inflation cures inflation. But this is but this is all feeding back into how we view markets and assets. Now, and as I said, you know, what's interesting here is that we have some of the most negative sentiment, not just by individual investors, but also by um, professional managers. I got a chart here of sentiment and this is the net percentage of professional managers taking higher than normal risk right so right now professional managers are not taking any risk whatsoever in fact the level of risk that invest professional managers are taking on right now is at the lowest level since october of 2008 that's lehman so you know, this is that tells you kind of the overall sentiment of what's going on. 
if we take a look at equity allocations, right, and looking at allocations relative to bonds, as an example, these allocations are also at some of the lowest levels we've seen since October of 2008. And, and again, just nobody's wanting to take any risk, right? And so it looks like it. And if you looked at this data, again, if I, as I said in the first segment of the show, if I just showed you this data and said, hey, look at this equity allocation levels it's at the lowest level since October of 2008, you go, man, that's got to be a bear market bottom. It must be a terrible bear market. We must be in a terrible financial crisis right now. Right, must be a massive recession. Things are just falling apart. You know, business is going bankrupt. It's terrible. It's not happening at the moment, anyway. I'm not saying it won't, but it's not happening now. But that's certainly the attitude. And again, this says this goes back to the point I was making, which is everywhere you look, it's just about as negative as it can get in terms of the way people think and feel and operate. And again, you're just inundated with negativity all day long. I mean, when's the last time you turned on television and somebody said something happy, <laughs> right? It just doesn't happen anymore. And it's a shame. It kind of makes life miserable. But even social media has gotten to be the same way, right? You just get on social media and it's just negativity after negativity. So, again... You know, when we come back and looking at, you know, how we position and, and how we look at things and how we manage money, et cetera, we've got to separate out this emotional bias that's going on right now. And again, lots of negativity, right? So the, the first inclination is, is, man, get me out of the market because I just I don't see anything good going on. Everywhere you look, it's negative, Right. So just get me out of the markets. The problem with doing that, of course, is, is this is where these are the points, right? So now we look at this in the other manner. When things are so negative as they are now, this is the point to where we start getting surprised. If you take a look at a lot of the economic data, it's very negative. Expectations, forward expectations for economic data are very negative. Now, I'm not saying that the data can't get worse. Don't, don't mistake what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that when expectations are extremely negative, it's much easier to have economic surprises. In other words, the data is not as bad. And so markets tend to overcompensate. We tend to overshoot things. Now, I'm not saying that the market has done the work yet. But what I'm, what I'm trying to get across to you is be careful I'm getting a lot of emails from people talking about, you know, I'm just out of the markets because, you know, it's the world's coming to an end, right? It's not. It's not coming to an end yet. According to the climate change people, we have till 2030. By the way, did you know that not one single prediction of climate change has come true since 1950? I was reading that this yeah, morning. Interesting. Yeah. Also has a lot more to do with the sun than, than <laughs> emissions, but that's a story for a different yes, day. Yes, yes. Um, war's not coming to an end. Uh, you know, one of the things that may wind up surprising people is a reversal in the strength of the dollar. Now, that's going to happen eventually. 
the dollar is going to weaken relative to other currencies. What's going to cause that to happen today? Nothing, right? What's going to, what's going to cause that to happen in the next week? Don't know. Next month? Who knows? But it is going to happen at some point. There's going to be a shift in dollar movement from the U.S. dollar back into other currencies, the euro, whatever it is, and because things, the things ebb and evolve over time, right? So a reversal in the dollar could prove to be a fairly decent support for asset prices if that occurs. Now, when will that occur? I have no idea. But it's something worth watching and keeping an eye on the dollar because, again, Two years ago, the dollar was going down and everybody was like, ah, the, the dollar's terrible and the dollar's going to zero. And I was making arguments back then that, no, pretty much we're about to have a stronger dollar. And since then, we continue to have a stronger dollar. And I haven't heard from those people that argued with me since. <laughs> but the dollar is going to weaken. Again, what causes it? I don't know. But it will weaken eventually. That could provide a, a relative support for asset prices for risk on assets. We'll see what that we'll see what happens when that happens. One of the interesting dichotomies of this of this adventure has been though that normally when the dollar is getting stronger, commodities get weaker because commodities are trading the dollar everywhere else in the world. And when the dollar is going up, those commodities are much more expensive for foreigners to to buy. And normally you have a reversal in commodity. This time not not the case. They've all kind of run together. So we'll see. Is this time different? I doubt it, but we'll find out. Uh, when we come back from the break, I want to pop on a topic here real quick about housing. Talk about that right after the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com inflation touches every aspect of your life no one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation ria advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn thursday august 4th at noon register now at realinvestmentadvice.com there's no magic elixir against inflation our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects register today at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com you're listening to the the Real Investment Show. I'll talk a little bit about housing here for a minute. There was an interesting chart out this morning. I'll show you here in a minute. Talking about how long it takes to save up for a house, right? Save up a down payment for a house. And I thought it was interesting because the way that the chart is titled makes it sound like that's a bad thing. Like, oh my gosh, it could take people 10 years to save up for a down payment of a house. That's what it should be, right? Back in the day, <laughs> as Brent and I say, you know, back in the day was when there was only, you know, two ways to die as a kid, right? You know, 
either natural causes or talking back to your parents. That's the day we're talking about, right? We're still talking about that. But back in the day, right, you know, housing houses weren't that expensive, first of all, right? And, and that was because in order to save up for a house, you had to have a 20% down payment. There was none of this get two mortgages thing to avoid PMI insurance. It was just you saved up 20% for down payment on the house, the bank would lend you the rest. That's just the way it was. And so house prices remained fairly moderate because people could only save up so much money for a house, right? And it took a while. It took my parents like eight years to save up for the down payment on their house. And they were like squirreling it away, right? Jars under blankets and stuff like that, right? And that was just, that was the norm, right? And so when you went to the bank and you walked in there with your 20% down payment, you had skin in the game and the bank says, okay, I'll loan you the other 80% for the house, but you had a 20%, you know, chunk of that house that you own. So, you know, you didn't want to lose that money. So people really focused on paying their mortgages and they bought houses they could afford. And, and because of this situation, we didn't have, you know, house price increases and we didn't have these bubbles that we've seen over the last few years. And the, the reason that these bubbles have become more the norm is because we started doing all these crazy things, right? So you could get two mortgages. So you could put less money down and you get two mortgages to avoid the PMI insurance. Um, we started coming up with all these adjustable rate mortgages and, you know, no income justification mortgages and, and these type you know, uh, subprime loans. And, you know, just anybody is like, we just had to get people into houses. And of course, when you create a lot of demand for houses, cause you're giving people money, then that means the prices of houses have to go up. And then when the Fed comes in and starts dropping interest rates, pushing interest rates lower to zero, that means that the money I'm spending on the house, I can buy more house. My monthly payment that I can afford, right? I can afford $500 a month. You know, at 5%, I can afford a, you know, a $150,000 house, but at 2%, I can afford a $300,000 house, right? So we all started buying more expensive houses. We all wanted to live like, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies and have these big houses. And so now the average house uh, the average price of the house is over $300,000, right? And this is all caused by all this funny money that we've been doing with mortgages for the last, you know, 20 years. And we keep one and we wonder why it's like we we look around it's like, "Man, why are houses so expensive?" <laughs> People are upset. I can't I can't get into a house because every time I try to buy a house, somebody outbids me for it. Well, yeah, because, you know, there's no requirements. I get a 3% down Fannie Mae mortgage. I don't have to save up a lot of money to get a Fannie Mae mortgage. And this is but but this is the 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 consequences of loose fiscal and monetary policy. And I thought this chart, let me show you this chart. Because I thought it was interesting because, uh, again, this chart makes it sound like it's a terrible thing. Number of years to save for down payments, first-time homebuyers. And it says right now that it takes up to 10 years for somebody to save up for a house. It's terrible. That's, that, should just, that should just not happen. You should be able to walk out of college without a job and buy a house, right? No. You know, and this goes back to 
you know, part of what we talked about in terms of capitalism, right? The American dream. And the American dream was never about owning a house. Somewhere, you know, the, the real estate association came out as like the National Association of Real Estate came out as like the American dream, got to buy a house, right? Yeah, because they want to they wanna sell you a house. That's their job. But the American dream is not buying a house. That's not, you know, getting into debt and buying something you can't afford is not the American dream, right? That can turn out to be the American nightmare pretty quick and has for a lot of people. The, the American dream is coming to America with two nickels in your pocket and building something, right? We hear all these stories of people that have come to America with, you know, very little money and they've created very successful businesses and you know, I'm not talking about, you know, the, the musk of the world. I'm talking about people that built, you know, very successful businesses of manufacturing companies, electrical companies or whatever. And they've made a very decent life for themselves here in America from nothing. Right. That's the American dream. And, and, and the the trapping of that achievement. Right. The measure of that success is when you have enough wealth saved up that you can afford to buy a piece of property, right? Buy a house. And being able to afford it being the key word, right? So now I've built this very successful business. Now I can go out and I can buy my house. And I can put 20% down on it and I can have a a reasonable mortgage and I can pay my mortgage because I have plenty of discretionary cash flow, et cetera, so forth and so on. The the houses are not the American dream. The houses are a representation of your achievement of that American dream, right? That's where we've gone terribly wrong. And and again, you know, when you take a look at this chart saying, you know, the number of years that it takes for people to save up a down payment of the house, it could be up to 10 years or 15 years. So what? Great. Make it 10 years. Make it 15 years. However long it takes you to save up for the house, Great. Because when you go to buy the house, you can afford it. And here's what happens to housing. If we would get get rid of all these funny mortgages, right, and go back to you can get one mortgage, it's 20% down, and you can go buy your house. Housing prices would stabilize and fall. And they 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 would fall to a normal economic level. So instead of a house being, you know, averaging $350,000, maybe we go back to $225,000 being kind of the median house, right? But then you stop having these bubbles. You'll get back into a more normal trend growth where housing prices are growing with the rate of inflation in the economy, which is exactly what they should do. Affordability comes back into line. People are not defaulting on their mortgages because they've got houses they can actually afford. Surprise. And if you can't afford a house, gets what you're doing, you're renting. And that's okay. You know, that's another thing we've done here to 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 individuals is like, oh, pfft, renting is terrible. Should never rent a house. You're just giving somebody else some money. Well, first of all, the people that are providing the rental properties, yes, that's their business, and that's the, the way they make income, and they've been successful in saving up money, creating a business to build monthly family homes or to, to buy houses and turn them into rentals, et cetera, and that's okay. 
when you're renting, they're responsible for all the upkeep, the maintenance, etc. You just simply pay your rent and guess what you're doing in the meantime? Saving up money for the down payment for your own home. It's okay to rent. Nothing wrong with it. It gives you flexibility. Don't like where you're living? Move. Right? Don't have to worry about selling anything. You just get to the end of your rental agreement and then you pack up and you move somewhere else you like better. Don't have to worry about selling a house, paying taxes, homeowners association dues, maintenance, upkeep, yard maintenance, pool maintenance, whatever it is. That's all done for you. There's nothing wrong with renting. But the National Association of Realtors doesn't like you to rent because, well, if you're renting, then you're not buying. And that means their real estate agents that they all support aren't making any money. So you see, see, everybody's got a hand in this game, and it's not necessarily for your benefit. There's nothing wrong with saving up money, right? There's nothing wrong with, with being required to prove that you can afford something. If you can, and see, that's the benefit of saving up a 20% down payment. If you can afford to save a 20% down payment, guess what that also suggests? It suggests that you've got your household in order, that you're not living paycheck to paycheck, going into debt every month, because you have, you've had the ability to squirrel away a 20% down payment. So it suggests that your financial situation at home is in order and solid enough for you to be able to buy this piece of property, which is now going to require you to also be having to do all the maintenance, the upkeep, et cetera. If you take a look at recent polls, all these young millennials that ran out and bought homes, they're, they're polling them now going, well, what did you think about your home purchase? Particularly these that bought them you know, after 2020 and 2021 with their STEMI checks. They took those down payments they got from the government, ran out to buy houses. Well, nobody told me I was going to have to, you know, like mow the yard and pay taxes and these homeowner association dues. Nobody told me about that. Didn't know I had to maintenance the house. Didn't know I had to mow the yard. You know, the washer went out. Didn't have money for that. The dryer went out. Didn't have money for that. The refrigerator failed. Didn't have money for that. And, and so they're upset because nobody told them about all. It, it took everything they had just to get into the house. And nobody told them about the ongoing expenses. The great thing about a 20% down payment is... If you can get there, you can afford all the other stuff that goes with home ownership. Because homes are an expense. They're not an investment. All right. Be right back after the break. Wrap up a couple of things. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Inflation touches every aspect of your life. No one can avoid it because we're living in an inflation nation. RIA Advisors has a nine-step inflation battle plan, and we're sharing it with you in a special summer lunch and learn, Thursday, August 4th at noon. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. There's no magic elixir against inflation. Our nine-step plan can help you blunt inflation's effects. Register today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment. Show.
So welcome back to the show this morning. Get ready to wrap things up. Futures are still kind of maintaining their upward bias this morning. Dow looks to open about 179. NASDAQ's up about 91 points. Um, so we'll see how this kind of opens. You know, we saw this yesterday. Markets opened up nicely positive and then sold off as Apple came out yesterday saying, yeah, we're going to have to maybe stop hiring people. <laughs> um this is kind of one of the interesting things that we're seeing right now, along with a lot of the economic data and, and not surprisingly here. And, and this is um, kind of the process that we go through in terms of employment is that, you know, we start hiring a bunch of people and because we have all this demand. And then when we start to see the demand fall off, we don't want to fire the people we hired. Look, I really like Brent. He's really good at his job. I really don't want to fire Brent. Right. So, I'm going to do everything I can to keep Brent on payroll. See, this is going to make him feel better as long as possible because I can't replace Brent. Brent is literally irreplaceable. When he dies, it's going to be weekend at Bernie's. Here at the studio, you'll see him, you know, I've just got puppet strings and sunglasses. And, and uh, Brent will keep working long after he's expired. The good news is it'll be for free, but he'll still be working long after he's expired. But so the first thing, though, that companies do is, is I don't want to get, I can't, I can't afford to get rid of these good employees because I won't get them back, right? See, if, if I let Brent go, Brent's going to have to get a job somewhere else. He's not going to go sit at home drinking Mai Tais. Well, he might because we pay him a lot. Um, he's not going to sit at home waiting for me to call him back to work, right? He's going to get a job somewhere else. So I don't want to lose really good employees, because they're very valuable. So the first thing I do as a business is I'm saying, okay, I'm just not going to hire any more people. I'm going to do everything I can to keep the people I have because they're expensive to hire and train. I'm going I'm to hold on to them as long as I can. Then once you get the hiring freezes, then you start getting the terminations and layoffs. See, that comes a little, little bit later on down the road as demand deteriorates. And as we've talked about before, businesses are always slow to hire, slow to fire. But we're seeing more and more companies, particularly in the technology space, starting to institute hiring freezes, Tesla, Google, Apple, others. And so we're starting to see this all kind of maturing at one time. Well, yesterday's announcement, and, and again, mark, markets were doing better yesterday morning, and then Apple comes out and says, hey, can't really hire any more people, suggesting that, you know, things are slowing down, wait on the markets. And so we sold off. Now, this morning, again, like I said, we're going to try to rally here a little bit out of the gate. S&P futures up about 28 points right now. So we'll see if, you know, this can you know, the market can kind of maintain this base it's in or, you know, is there still more concerns about the economic data? The economic data is weakening, right? There's no way, you know, nobody's denying that. The question is whether expectations have now gotten so negative that the economic data starts surprising to the upside. It's still bad, right? It's just not as bad. It's like the doctor coming in saying, well, you know, we're going to have to amputate your leg. But the good news is, only from the knee down. We thought we were going to take the whole leg, but just just the knee down. It's still right. It's still bad, right? That's, that's terrible. That's a terrible analogy. I just couldn't think of anything faster off the top of my head. <laughs> terrible analogy. It's still bad, right? It's just not as bad. 
Uh, terrible. Sorry. I just apologize for that. You get the idea. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> good news is, is we're only have to take your head. <laughs> so, Amputated the neck. Exactly. Um, but that's that, that's that's where we are, right? It's just you know the the news won't it will be it will still be bad. It just won't be as bad, and that's where markets may start to try to 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 find some support. Well, if the news isn't as bad, maybe we've priced in most everything. I don't know, right? This is this is all guesstimates and assumptions right now. And this is why it's so important that we don't make long range predictions about things. We simply just trade the markets for what they are. And manage that risk accordingly. And and you know these ideas of just well, I'm gonna buy something and sit on it, you know, get you into a lot of trouble, um, particularly if it's the wrong set of assets. But so just to kind of pay attention to this. I mean, we're definitely watching what's happening here with you know the economy. Things are certainly slowing down. And you know, don't know where this gets to ultimately. Uh, is this just a, a mile? You know, this, and this is the the kind of the interesting point. You know, two months ago, the media was saying absolutely no recession in sight. No way we're going to have a recession. Now we're looking at basically two quarters of potentially negative economic growth, much weaker than that was previously expected. By the way, and now they're saying, well, well maybe we'll have a mild recession. What's a mild recession, right? Uh, is a mild recession where your neighbor loses their job, but you don't? I mean, what, what's a mild recession? Or is it going to be a, a more severe recession, right? That we have, you know, more job losses and, you know, a much deeper contraction of economic activity. Don't know. And this is what I'm saying is like, you know, if you bet on something and this is, you know, again, I'm seeing a lot of people, you know, emailing me and, and you know, making comments. You know, they're very one sided on their bets. Right. Oh, that's, the world's about to end and I'm I'm hedged for the apocalypse. OK, great. You better have guns, ammo and beanie weenies for the apocalypse because that's all that's going to matter. The problem with being hedged for the apocalypse is that apocalypses never happen. On the other side of the of the coin, you know, the most optimistic outlooks generally never happen either. So reality always exists somewhere in between extremes. And that's where we've got to focus our efforts and our attention in terms of of managing money and and making those that analysis on how much risk we take or how much risk we don't take. And, and, and this is why it's important. You know, I was talking about the media earlier and how it's just everywhere you look on the media, it's just super negative, right? Well, that's that's the extremes, right? And, and reality is somewhere in the middle of these extremes, right? And all we see on the news is, is, is extremes of these reports. But reality is always somewhere in the middle. But reality is boring, and so nobody wants to report on reality. So we get all these extremes, and that's and and that that warps and and shapes our perceptions to us thinking that man, the world must be a terrible place because you know I was just watching the news, and the news said ABC. Yeah, we're all going to die from climate change. You know, the world's ending, and and you know, everybody in California now rules the world. You know, whatever, right? 
the point is, is that we can't allow these extreme narratives to affect our investing because it'll make us make decisions that are psychologically inappropriate for our portfolios. And we talk about these psychological behaviors all the time, loss aversion, um, you know, anchoring where we get stuck on some former price level loss aversions where we're trying to just avoid losses. We can't just, I can't take any more losses. I just got to get out. You know, these are all behaviors. You know, one of the biggest ones we get, of course, is confirmation bias. When we look at the stuff that, you know, supports our opinion. So if we think the world's going to end, that's all we read, right? We read all the doomsday prepper blogs. So that's why it's always important. We've got to balance our views, balance our outlooks, you know, step away from the headlines and do the analysis. And look, if you're managing your own money, it requires work. It's not as simple as just buying some stuff and hoping it goes up. Those that, you know, that seems to be the case during bull markets, right? It can't go wrong. You know, I was getting chastised in 2020 because I wasn't buying bankrupt companies, but they were going up, you know, Hertz and stuff like that. But that's not investing, that's speculating, that's gambling, right? And that's not what we do with client money. We invest. And we're investing for the long term, right? We're trying to get those long-term returns. And we always talk about that. I'm writing an article on this right now about long-term returns and, you know, the impact of what the Fed has done to return structures and why long-term returns going forward are going to be lower. But we've gotten used to this idea that the Fed is always there to buy to bail us out. And this is the I was talking about the FOMO earlier in, in the show this morning, talking about, you know, before it was the FOMO of missing out on the upside. Now it's the FOMO of missing the bottom because, the you know, the Fed is going to show up any day now to bail out the markets. And I don't want to miss that, right? Because when the Fed shows up to start bailing out the markets, these markets are going to take off screaming. And I don't want to miss the bottom, so I got to be in there. So just Lance, just let me know where the bottom is so I can just put all my money. I'm going to back up the truck. I'm going to take out a home equity mortgage. I'm going to just throw it all in the markets. That's, that's, that's what we've been taught over the last decade. Because every time the markets do go through a correction, right, the Fed has shown up to bail it out. So we train. We've been trained like Pavlov's dogs, right? Ring the bell, drool, get food. question is, is can the Fed continue to do that? My suspicion is, yeah. <laughs> My suspicion is, is that at some point the Fed is going to come back and they're going to reverse quantitative tightening. And they're going to go back to quantitative easing because that's the only bag of tricks they know. Now, it's not helping anybody. You know, QE is a great wealth extractor from the middle class. It shifts wealth from the middle class to the, to the wealthy, right? So it doesn't help anybody. It certainly doesn't help the economy. It makes the market look better. And if you've got assets to invest, good for you. But at some point, markets have to return to the rate of economic growth that the, that the economy can actually generate. And that rate of growth is significantly weaker because of the debts, the deficits, everything else that we put on. Anyway, that article is coming up. I'm going to have that available for you probably next week. Um, it'll be on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get all of our latest blog posts. We have a blog post out this morning on ESG investing and its eventual demise and why we were you know, talking about that a long time ago. The latest newsletter is out, our daily commentary. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Also, if you're, if you're a do-it-yourself investor, you can follow all of our models and our research 
at simplevisor.com. That's simplevisor.com is a completely digital platform. And you can even have the platform manage money for you. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world.